Thank you, choir. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 6, the sixth chapter of the book of Nehemiah. We've been moving through this book now for a month and a half or so, and uh, soon we're going to be taking a break from the book of Nehemiah just because of kind of where we are in the calendar. Uh, next Sunday is Lord's Supper, and we celebrate that four times a year, and uh, always some of the most meaningful services we have, some of the simplest services we have uh, are Lord's Supper services. So next Sunday, we'll be kind of out of the book of Nehemiah, uh, and, uh, and then we'll have one more, actually, I'll be out the following Sunday, then we'll have one more message before we begin to, believe it or not, hit the holidays. And so we'll kind of turn our focus towards somewhat of a Christmas theme, and then re, re uh, you know, return to the book of Nehemiah soon. But today, Nehemiah chapter 6, and it, this has been a great run for, for me at least. You know, I have really enjoyed preparing for these messages. Nehemiah has for a long time been one of my favorite books of Scripture. And uh, if you take time to read through it, there are many, many challenges at a lot of different levels in the book of Nehemiah. And so what you find is as you move through it, you know, that there, if you are a leader, there are a lot of leadership principles that are there. Uh, if you're, you know, a person who uh, seeks to have an impact on others, there are lots of opportunities to shape you as to how you in- impact and influence others. So the book of Nehemiah is just an amazing book. And I, I, if you haven't been here up through the first five chapters, man, I really encourage you to jump in and start, start catching up because it's going to be worth your time. So Nehemiah chapter 6. We live in a distraction-rich environment, don't we? Right? We are surrounded by distractions. And those come in a lot of different shapes, a lot of different sizes. But it's not hard for us to recognize, for us to realize that we have to deal with distractions. And for some people, it's harder than for other people. You know, for, for me, you know, I held out with my flip phone for a long time, right? And I, you know, I held out and uh, I tried because I know how I can be with distractions. And uh, so a year and a half ago, you know, they didn't sell flip phones hardly anymore, so I had to, you know, I had to, you know, uh, make, a, make a change of course, I guess, so, uh, you know, kind of shifted gears, and that's a whole different level of distraction, but we deal with distraction virtually every single day of our lives, and, and some people are very good at dealing with it. Some can manage it. I mean, you can, you know, you can watch TV, right, and, and your kids can be peeling wallpaper, and, and you know, there can be a, a hurricane outside, and, you know, your roof fly off, and you're still watching your show, and nothing moves you, nothing phases you, you know, you can just kind of deal with it and move right on through. Others of you, you're distracted, you know, at, at the easiest, you know, just, that's the slightest thing. Remember the movie, I think it was the movie Up, I never saw it, but I heard about the little dog, right, where you can translate him, remember him, and he's just, you know, doing his little thing, it's squirrel, and off he goes, you know, that's the way some of us are, and distractions can be very, very difficult, as we're going to see as we look through this particular chapter, and, and yet when I began to look at what distractions were all about, I came up with a definition. I came up with a definition, my own little definition, and basically it's this, that anything that causes us to move our focus from the main thing to a lesser thing is a distraction. Anything that comes, now I'm sure Webster came up with a much better definition than I did, but anything that causes us in whatever area of life to move our focus from the main thing to a lesser thing, I did not say from a, from a good thing to a bad thing. I said anything that causes us to move our focus from the main thing to a lesser thing, I think we can rightly call a distraction. And they come in all shapes and sizes. There are physical distractions, as I just described. You know, for some, maybe for you, I mean, your phone is a distraction. Maybe there are other things that you recognize in your life that are physical distractions. Distracted driving, for example. If you think about it, over 3,000 people were killed uh, as a result of distracted driving just a couple of years ago in 2013. Over 400,000 injured as a result of distracted driving. And that could be everything from texting to phone calls to, you know, looking for something in the back seat to, you know, eating cereal, right? You've seen people that eat their breakfast and they do their makeup on their way to work. It can be a host of things, but physically it's distracted driving. 
that kills many, many people as a result of it. And so there are physical distractions that we have to deal with. There are emotional distractions that we have to deal with. Things like worry or doubt or we, you know, we just become preoccupied with thoughts that go you know, blazing through our minds. If you have small kids or, or uh, if you've ever watched children at all, have you, tell me, that. Well, don't raise your hand. Have you ever like, you know, strapped your child in and then got all the way over the bridge you know, into Thunderbolt, heading on into Savannah, and then thought, oh my gosh, did I put my kid in the car? Have you ever had that happen? You know, some of you are laughing. You've done that, right? Or, you know, have you ever like wondered, did I just forget one of my family members somewhere? You know, did I just leave and forget to put them in the car? You know, we get so distracted with things, all right? I know you're praying for my kids right now, even as you sit, but we get so distracted emotionally. Have you ever driven and, and just sort of like been off in, a, in, a, in another world emotionally? You're thinking about stuff or you're worried or whatever, and then you, you kind of like came to your senses and thought, how many red lights did I just go through? You know, it's emotional distraction, you know, and we all face that emotionally. But then there are also what I would call spiritual distractions. There are things that cause us spiritually to move our focus off of the main thing. Just as physically when we're driving, right, there are physical distractions. You know, we're supposed to have our minds on the road, you know, but we're, you know, we're doing something else physically, you know, it's, it's trading the main thing for a lesser thing that happens on a spiritual level. And when we realize that God has a purpose for our lives, and when we realize that God has a plan for our lives, that God has a specific thing that he wants to accomplish through our lives, he, he has, he has a, a goals for us, so to speak. You know, he has a, a, a course charted out for us. When we begin to realize that we are here for a purpose and that God wants us to learn certain things about him and to pursue certain things and have certain things on the inside, right? Certain motivations and qualities you know, that he wants to work into us. Whenever we begin to think about that, how many times are we distracted spiritually from the main thing and we trade it in for a lesser thing well this morning in nehemiah chapter six here's what i want us to see i want us to begin to see how nehemiah faced distraction and ultimately what he did about it because there's a principle that we have to keep in mind as we move through this chapter specifically and the principle is this you'll see it on the overhead that in the hands of the enemy you all have an enemy right his name is satan you know he he uh, he is real he is alive scripture speaks very often about him and his desire is to absolutely destroy your life and to wreck your relationship with god if you're a believer that's what he aims to do and in the hands of, of the enemy, whenever we begin to think about what he wants to do through our lives, distraction is, also, uh, is oftentimes one of his most effective weapons. That when you look at churches today that are not accomplishing what churches are supposed to be accomplishing, oftentimes the reason for that is because we have become distracted having traded the main things for the lesser things. When you look at people in life today, whenever, whenever you look at a, a marriage, for example, and, and you find that maybe for, for that husband, he's experiencing real strain in his marriage, and yet what's happening is, is that he, he's, he's trading in his marriage and developing a relationship with his wife and with his family, uh, ultimately to pursue a career, to put in far more time in the office than he should, right? It's because he's traded the main thing, his marriage, for a lesser thing, a career, <laughs> and if you're at a place in your marriage where your career is more important than your marriage, you are heavily distracted because that is not a biblical perspective, right? If you have, a, ha have this, this mentality perhaps that your kids are, are uh, important to you except there are certain work aspects of life that come or certain uh, other things that are a little bit more important than them, you know, perhaps what you're, you're dealing with is distraction that if you're not willing to deal with that is going to have huge implications in your family as a result of it. It has everything to do with our relationship with God. And in the hands of the enemy, 
Sometimes distraction is one of his primary weapons that he uses. And so if the enemy uses distraction so effectively, wouldn't it then make sense that on a spiritual level, he would be constantly feeding distractions our way to draw us further and further from a walk with God? Wouldn't it make sense that the enemy, if distraction is one of his primary weapons... Is constantly going to be feeding distractions across the life of the church to pull us away from the main thing, to make it more about us rather than to make it more about God and about reaching people with the message of the gospel. And so that's exactly what Nehemiah deals with in chapter 6. So let me just go ahead and give you a quick little recap and catch you up to speed with what we've been looking at up to this point. Nehemiah was a Jew at heart. By his heritage, he was a Jew. Now, Nehemiah, though he was not living in Jerusalem, had a heart for the city of Jerusalem, and he had a heart for the people of Jerusalem. The reason that he was not living there was because he was working a government job for the king. Nehemiah, this is about 450 years before Jesus would come, is working in the land of Persia for the king by the name of King Artaxerxes I. He's working for the king as a wine taster, right? He's a, like the taste tester. He, he's the one, he, it's called the cupbearer. He was the one who would taste the king's wine, you know, the king's drink, before he would taste it in case somebody was wanting to kill the king. So Nehemiah had a very important position. He also, by virtue of that position, was extremely trusted, right? He had worked into the good graces of the king, obviously, because if, if your life depends on this one person who's your cupbearer, I mean, you're going to trust him probably with a lot of things. And so Nehemiah, more than likely, was an advisor to the king to some degree in an unofficial capacity. He was one that could be trusted, but yet he was also a follower of God by virtue of his Jewish heritage. And so Nehemiah learns that as a result of the exile years before, because of uh, the Babylonians having swept in, that the city of Jerusalem was in shambles. Now it had been rebuilt to some degree. The temple had been rebuilt through the years, but the people were still very scattered. The people were still very, uh, 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 very broken. They, they were hurting people. And, and on top of that, there was no wall around the city of Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah's task was to go back to the city of Jerusalem. He heard things were not good. His heart was very burdened for the people there. And so he felt compelled to go back home again. And so he sought permission from the king, permission granted. He goes back to Jerusalem, and he begins to, to rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem. So the first uh, five chapters we've looked at are kind of chronicling this story of how Nehemiah would go back to Jerusalem and rebuild this, or lead this rebuilding effort to rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem. And so as he goes back there, he immediately begins to face opposition. Chapter 3 talks about opposition that he faces from the outside. It names some names, right? A guy named Sanballat, a guy named Tobiah. Uh, it mentions different nationalities uh, uh, that, that came against this work. And the people would kind of stand outside the work, right? The task that God had ordained. And as Nehemiah is leading the rebuilding of this wall, they're just kind of like hurling insults at him, right? They're standing out there just mocking him, mocking the people that are working, telling them they are wasting their time. This is just a ridiculous effort. You know, this is never going to last. You're never going to get this done. And from the outside, Nehemiah has to deal with all this opposition, somewhat similar to what we see here in our own country today uh, uh, about, you know, regarding the world versus Christianity versus the Christian faith. We're seeing a lot of that unfold in our own country. We're seeing it unfold, obviously, around the world, but it's becoming a more heightened sense even in our own nation uh, today. So people that are outside the walls of the Christian faith, just hurling insults, so, you know, bringing persecution, trying to oppose the work of God. That's what Nehemiah dealt with. Well, the following chapter, he begins to deal with opposition from the inside. We looked at this a little bit last week. 
where there were people on the inside, Jews, I mean, that, that were, you know, should have had a heart in this work, that were gouging their people. There were issues going on. There were people that were starving because of a famine. And you had certain numbers within the wall, right, within the city, Jewish people, that were gouging their own people. They were selfish. They were taking advantage of the opportunities that were there. They placed their agenda above God's agenda. And as a result, there, there was a train wreck on the, on the horizon. So Nehemiah had to deal with that. He had to deal with this issue of selfishness, selfish agendas, and, and he jumped in full speed and he began to address those issues. Well, today it shifts gears, chapter 6. It's not just opposition now against God's work from the outside. It's not just opposition against God's work from the inside. Now we're going to see a little bit more precisely how the enemy works, and he's going to begin to work ultimately through distraction. And so chapter 6, let's go ahead and begin to jump in. We're going to cover the whole entire chapter today, uh, the majority of it at least, and, uh, and see how Nehemiah faces this enemy and this weapon called distraction and what he ultimately does about it. So Nehemiah chapter 6, pick up with me here in verse 1. If you have your Bibles, read along with me. If not, it's on the overhead behind me. You can read along there. Verse 1, he says, So now when it was reported to Sanballat and Tobiah and to Geshem the Arab, those were all enemies that have uh, largely been dealt with earlier, he says, Whenever it was reported to them and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, let me pause there, what happened here is that the wall has been basically rebuilt uh, with everything in place except the doors and gates. That's what he's talking about. So he says, There was no breach remaining in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. Nehemiah is basically saying, Everything in this wall has been done except the finishing work. You know, we got to put some doors in place. You know, we got to put some gates in place. But as for the wall, this wall has been largely rebuilt. I mean, it, the, the work for the most part is just about done. And this has been a, a huge undertaking. And so let me, let me just pause here and give a little bit of an idea of kind of what we're looking at here. When you think about building a wall around the city of Jerusalem, you're thinking, man, this must have been a huge project. I mean, thinking about building a wall around Savannah, certainly Jerusalem is bigger than Savannah, right? Well, you just got to kind of take that out of your mind and push it to the curb for a second because we're not dealing with those kinds of dimensions. If you go back to the day of, of David, uh, David was about 1,000 years before Jesus would come, about 600 years, give or take, 550 years before Nehemiah. In the days of David, whenever David would come in and he would begin to set up shop in Jerusalem, the, the city of Jerusalem was about about 12 acres. You know, that's kind of what theologians tell us, about 12 acres. To give you a little bit of a mindset, I think you're familiar with Calvary, right? The whole property of Calvary, right? the big church, the big school, you know, that whole you know, property there, it's 22 acres. Back in David's day, Jerusalem right, was about 12. What we have here on our property is about seven. Right? So Jerusalem in David's day was kind of in between the size of our church property and Calvary. Calvary's church property, right? That's kind of what you're looking at. Not a whole big, big plot of land. Well, Solomon would come along, David's son. Solomon would come along. He would begin to reign, and he would ultimately begin to expand to, to, to some degree, kind of the, the, the city dimensions of Jerusalem. And in Solomon's day, it would expand to about 32 acres, all right? So it would get bigger, the city of Jerusalem. Well, around 700 BC, you got a king named Hezekiah who comes in. Hezekiah begins to expand things as well, up to about 135 acres, right? So the city of Jerusalem is about 135 acres total. Well, by the time we get to Nehemiah's time, around 450, you know, 445 BC, what you find is that the city of Jerusalem is around 950 acres in size. It is about a, about a mile and a half, about one and a half square miles, Right, is, is kind of what you're looking at. So for Nehemiah to build a wall around that city, we're not talking about building a wall around Savannah, okay? But we are talking about a sizable task. 
you know, a, a wall rebuilt. Most would agree that it wasn't, you know, built from, from scratch. It was a rebuilding of Hezekiah's wall that had largely been torn down during the exile, that he's rebuilding this wall around about a one and a half square miles of property, so to speak, around the sea of Jerusalem. This is a huge task. So Nehemiah comes in. He oversees this building project. And he has come, verse 1, chapter 6 tells us, to the place to where everything has been accomplished except for putting in place the doors and the gates. So let's move on to verse 2. Verse 2 and verse 3, it says, Then Sanballat and Geshem, again, these, these enemies of the work, they send a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Shepherim in the plain of Ono. The plain of Ono was about, it was a neutral site, about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It was like a coastal region. And so it's about 20 miles away. These two enemies come and say, Nehemiah, you know what, we got an idea. You know, let's meet. Let's kind of leave the work for, for a little bit. Let's just meet up. We're going to meet in this neutral area called the plain of Ono. You know where it is, 20 miles away. Let's just meet there. But Nehemiah says at the end of verse 2, he says, but they were planning to harm me. And so I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work. I love Nehemiah's response. This is one of the key parts of the whole entire book to me. He says, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Nehemiah understood what God's task was at hand. This was not about a wall. This was not about, you know, a better job opportunity for Nehemiah. If he wanted a better job, he would have stayed with the king back in Persia because he had everything there. You know, this was a step down for Nehemiah. He was answering God's call. And what he did was he stepped down from his position, working in the government position that he had with the king. And he goes a thousand miles to Jerusalem to oversee this project where he instantly has enemies against him, instantly has people plotting to kill him, right? And that's what he chooses for himself. And he does it because it's what God wanted for him. God made it clear. He burdened his heart and said, this is what I want you to do, Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah goes back, and this is what he deals with, all of this opposition. And in the midst of the opposition, let's bring that passage up again, verse 2 and verse 3. The enemy is very specific. The enemy uses these two guys, Sambal and Geshem, to try to distract him from the work to try to lure him away from the work. And the way they do it is to say, hey, Nehemiah, hey, Nehemiah. <laughs> Man, we want a little meeting with you. We, we just want to meet with you. That's all we want to do. So just kind of you know, put down the work and just let's just meet up 20 miles away. They had a lot of other stuff in the mix. They had a lot of parts that were moving in this. They were going to try to ambush him, kill him. But the way they tried to put this in place was through distraction. Let me just say, if you are a Christian and you seek to live a life that makes a difference for the cause of Christ, you are going to face distraction. It is going to come. It's going to come at an individual level. If you are a parent, listen, there are going to be many times you know, where your kids say, hey, will you come out? Will you go play with me? You know, and you're going to look at dishes in the sink and you're going to look at stuff in the garage for you guys that need to get done. You're going to have your long list of stuff to do, and you're going to have all these things that you know, man, I've got to get to this. I'm never going to have time to get this done. You're going to look at clothes in the hamper that need to be folded, and your kid's going to be standing there saying, hey, can you go out and play with me? And I just hope that the majority of the time when that happens, so that you don't look back with regret, that you look at that stack of laundry, you look at that pile of dirty clothes, and you look in that garage with that list of stuff to do, and you look back at your child and say, you know what? As you walk out the door to the park, you're saying, I have got a good work to do. Guys, the next time that you're at your job, and it's another 80 hour a week, and your wife is trying to get in touch with you, and you keep pushing her on to voicemail, 
I hope the next time that happens, when it's time to beat a path back to the house, that you look at her picture on your desk and you say, as you look at all your distractions, I am doing a good work and I cannot come down as you turn off the light and go home. There are distractions that are fatal in your life. And on an individual level, you and I have to deal with them. Listen, some of them we have to have the courage to eliminate, and some of them we have to have the, the, the wisdom to manage. And you've got to figure out which is which. Which of the distractions in my life do I have to eliminate because they are causing me, listen, to trade the main thing for a lesser thing? Which distractions do I need to cut loose and get rid of in my life? And I hope that you'll pray for the courage to do that. And which distractions do I need to pray to God to give me wisdom to know how to manage? Because I can't cut them loose. They're a part of my life and they need to be. But I've got to manage them so that I don't lose the main thing in exchange for a lesser thing. Nehemiah had the courage and the wisdom to say to these two enemies, when they, when they get, get this, this would have looked on the surface as though these two enemies were wanting to make peace with Nehemiah. The next time you have an enemy, right, or maybe not an enemy, maybe it's someone that you're just at odds with, and they come to you and they say, hey, let's meet up because I just want to talk things through. You're going to think, you know what? This is a great opportunity to make things right. Nehemiah had the wisdom to see through it and to say, no, this is a distraction. It's going to cause me to trade the main thing for a lesser thing. And so, guys, I'm not even going to say I'm sorry, but I'm doing a great work. And why should I leave that great work to come to, to meet with you? So there are individual applications for that principle. But also, let me just say, for us as a church, there are also applications. There, there are opportunities for churches to become so busy with things that don't even matter. So busy with things that will never last. Things that God doesn't even want us to be involved in. There, there are opportunities for churches to become so bogged down in things that are of lesser value and to miss the whole main thing as a result of it. It's constant temptation for churches. And let me say as well that God has planted this church here for a reason. God put this church on this corner over 50 years ago, long before this area was developed. He put this church through people that had vision on the most, I would say, one of the most prominent corners on this island. He put a church that proclaims the message of the gospel, the message, the only message that's going to impact eternity. God put a church here, and we have a decision to make as people because there is no such thing as the institutional church. The church is not a machine that we crank up on Monday morning, and then it runs through Sunday night, and then we fill it back up again with, with fuel and crank it back up again. It is not an institution that runs that way. It is, it is a movement that is driven by God through people. And if we lose sight of why God has put us here and we quit sharing the gospel message and if we quit as we leave this place on Sunday mornings, if we quit going out with an intentionality to say, you know what, when I go to work, I want people to see what God looks like when God goes to work. And whenever you go home, you know what, I want my family to see what God looks like when God raises a family. If we lose that mentality and it's just a place we come to, this church will soon lose its impact in this community. And I believe that if we lose our impact, God will replace us with one that will do it the right way. And the way churches lose their impact 
is not because of the enemy showing up and leading a church off into blatant sin. Oftentimes, it's because of distraction. We've got to lose the mentality that the devil runs around with a red jumpsuit and a pointy tail and a big pitchfork, and he jumps out like, ah, I got you. It's not the way he operates. He operates subtly. He operates in the shadows. And oftentimes, it's distraction that is his most effective weapon. And Nehemiah had the courage and he had the wisdom to deal with it. Verse 4. So they sent messages to me four times. They would not leave him alone. They sent me four messages in this manner, and I answered them in the same way. Four different times, Nehemiah said, I'm doing a great work, and I can't come down. And so Samballot, verse 5, then Samballot sent a servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported... Yeah, it is reported, you know, we don't know if this is true necessarily, but it's reported that among the nations, and Gashmu says, whoever he is, apparently he has, you know, like real sway, that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you're rebuilding the wall, and you're going to be their king, according to these reports. You've also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you, a king is in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel, counsel together. Here's what was happening. This was an open letter, meaning more than likely this was being disseminated across the region. Everyone would be reading this. And what was being done here would be the posing of threats and lies in order to distract Nehemiah and to distract the people. The threat was this. Oh, we're going to tell people that you were setting up an alternate kingdom. Remember, in this day, Jerusalem is operating under Persian influence, under Persian rule. Nehemiah had been sent there, and he'd been given the authority of King Artaxerxes in Persia as governor. He would serve as governor for 12 straight years before he would go back to Persia again. Nehemiah was there as governor by authority of the king of Persia. And now they're going to spread these lies that say, oh, you're not there as governor. You're trying to set up your own little kingdom. What do you think the king would do about this? <laughs> and so they're threatening Nehemiah. They're bringing fear to Nehemiah. They're raising the bar on this, right? They're trying to distract him from the work. Look at what it says in the next uh, the next passage, verse 8 and verse 9. So I sent a message to him saying, such things as you're saying have not been done. You're inventing them in your own mind. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Again, Nehemiah has the courage and he has the wisdom to know how to respond. He prays, he hands this over to God, and ultimately he then begins to move on. Verse 10. When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, I'm glad I made it through those names, right? He goes into this house. Shemaiah is the key player here. That's why we've got his name uh, highlighted. Who was confined at home. He said, let us meet together in the house of God. All right, here's another distraction. Hey, Nehemiah, let's go to the temple. Let's go to the house of God. Within the temple, let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you, and they're coming to kill you at night. Well, th you probably want to perk up and listen to this guy, right? But I said, should a man like me flee? <laughs> it's almost like Nehemiah says, how many times do I have to say this? I am here by authority of God with a God-given task that God has already proven he is all over, right? Why am I going to flee this? It's not about me. 
Why should I leave even though you threaten me? How many times do I have to say this? And and then he goes on and says, and could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. See, here's what we we don't find out in the book of Nehemiah. That that earlier in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 18 actually, a lay person, a person who was not a priest, was not allowed to go beyond the altar of burnt offering in the temple. If Nehemiah had taken this offer, uh, you know, and, and had he become fearful for his life, he would have broken a huge Old Testament rule, right, that God had put in place to enter the temple and to go into an area that was not proper for him to enter into. And so this is a setup. Nehemiah recognizes it. Verse 12, then I perceived that surely God had not sent him, Shemaiah, but he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly in sin so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Remember, O my God, Tobiah and Sanballat according to these works of theirs and also Noadiah the prophetess and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. Again, Nehemiah sees exactly right through everything that's being done here. It's a huge distraction to cause him to stumble and to sin and to lose his integrity as a result of it and to lose the opportunity to lead in what God is doing through him. Look again at what it says in verse 12. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him. He uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Shemaiah was a false prophet. He was a prophet for hire, right? He only did what he did because he got a little kickback as a result of it. And Nehemiah recognized this. Was there a day perhaps for Shemaiah when he was in it for the right reasons? Probably so. Was there a day when Shemaiah had a genuine desire to impact the people of God for the sake of God? Probably so. But he had come to a place in his life where the only thing that really mattered was making money off his job. And when the two enemies of the work of God come calling and say, you know what, we'll give you this, we'll pay you this, if you just get Nehemiah out of the way, he was more than happy to comply. Nehemiah, again, had the wisdom and he had the courage to deal with distraction. He had the wisdom to know which distractions to manage and he had the courage to know which distractions to eliminate. Which brings us to the last point that I want us to focus on out of this particular chapter. The point is this. Sometimes it's our distraction that becomes the very cause of our fall. For some here this morning, this may be the most important message you'll hear out of the book of Nehemiah. And the reason for that is because of the level of distractions in your life that are causing you to make such poor decisions that are impacting not just your marriage and not just your children and not just your relationships, not just your job and your career, not just your peace of mind, but they're impacting your very walk with God. And the reason this may be one of the most important messages, if not the most important message out of Nehemiah that you'll hear, is because if you don't very soon discern which elimination or or which uh, distractions to eliminate and which ones to manage, 
those distractions may very well be your downfall. And it may come quicker than you think. See, the stakes are very, very high. How many marriages have ended in this world with one spouse looking back and saying, I wish I had only done this differently. And whatever this was started to go off track because of a distraction. How many poor decisions have we wished we could have undone? And whenever we made that poor decision, it was because we had been distracted away from what we knew was right. There are many, many examples in Scripture of people that have faced distraction. You look at Judas, for example. Judas was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. Sometimes we forget that. We only look at him as the betrayer. But he was one of the 12 disciples that walked with Jesus for three years. Perhaps three and a half years of public ministry. I have no idea why Jesus chose Judas as a disciple knowing what would come. But he did. And he did for a reason. And yet it would be Judas that would ultimately what? Betray the very son of God. God himself. Jesus Christ. Would betray him into the hands of the enemy. For 30 pieces of silver. And it started with what? A distraction. Jesus would have a conversation with the man. We don't know his name, but he's called the rich young ruler. Jesus would have a conversation and the man would initiate it saying, basically, you know, what, is it, what does it take to get to heaven? What does it mean to follow you? And Jesus would tell him, here's what you need to do. And one of the things that he would say would be, you need to sell everything you own and you need to turn and follow me. That doesn't mean that we get to heaven by selling all our stuff and following Jesus. What Jesus was doing there was he was getting to the heart of the issue for this particular man. And it says that that man, the rich young ruler, went away sad because he had much stuff. He had many possessions. And for Judas, the distraction was money. For the rich young ruler, the distraction was possessions. But for a man you may not have heard of named Demas, the distraction was just simply the world itself. It would be Paul that would be writing a letter to the Colossian believers in the first century. Paul would be writing a letter to this church in the city of Colossa. Paul himself would be in prison. He would be in a Roman prison when he'd write the, the, the letter called Colossians. More than likely chained either to a guard or to the wall. All of his freedom would be taken away, taken away except for his freedom in Christ. And as Paul is writing out this letter, he, he would make mention of a man named Demas. You, you like me, probably have just kind of moved right on past his particular, you know, his, his name. There's not a whole lot said about him in Scripture. But I want you to look at what Paul says about him in Colossians 4. He names the name of Demas. He's writing this letter from prison to the Colossian believers. And he says, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Right? So here's Paul. He's in prison for his faith. He's in prison for preaching the message of the gospel. And right there with him in prison, sharing the burden, right? Helping to carry the load, showing support and encouragement. And so to speak, almost treating themselves like a prisoner as well, would be not only Luke, but also this man named Demas. What a commendable person, right? He had to have such great love for Paul. He more than likely had to have a partnership in Paul's ministry. Right? To be there with him in prison, you know, to help share the burden and to carry the load. I mean, Demas must have been quite a guy. I mean, focused and intent on being there for Paul, helping to further the message of the gospel. But within six years, when Paul pens another letter, this time to a man named Timothy in 2 Timothy, we find that things have changed in these six years for Demas. And at the end of Paul's life, the last letter that we have recorded that he writes, he says, Make every effort to come to me soon, he says to Timothy. 
For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. These aren't just pages in a book called the Bible. This would have been a real man named Paul who gave his whole life as an adult practically once he came to know Jesus to preach the message that had changed his whole eternity. And here's Paul. All he's doing is going city to city, country to country, preaching the message of the gospel. And because of the enemies that come against that, and there are always enemies against the preaching and the message of the gospel, he gets locked up and in prison. And one of the only guys that's there with him All Paul can say within six years after commending him is that I don't know where he is except that he ran off to Thessalonica and deserted me. Why? Because he became distracted by the elements of this world and he traded the main thing for a lesser thing and he left me when I needed him because he fell in love with this And man, I'm telling you, there are enemies against you having an impact for the sake of the gospel. There are enemies against us as a church about us having an impact for the sake of the gospel. Those enemies are oftentimes cloaked as distractions and the varieties are endless. And I don't know what what distraction you may face that is keeping you from having an impact for the sake of the gospel in your marriage, with your kids, with your grandkids, in your relationships, in your friendships, on your campus, in your workplace, in your neighborhood. The list goes on and on. I don't know what the distractions are that you face, but all I can say is, is that if those distractions are not dealt with by every single one of us, there is a very strong possibility that eventually one of those distractions will be our downfall. And so Nehemiah comes to a place where he returns to the commentary, verse 15. And in light of all the distractions, in light of all the enemies that started in chapter 4, all of the the, the efforts from the Jews on the inside that tried to display their selfishness, all of the stuff that happened, Nehemiah could say, verse 15, so the wall was completed, this one-and-a-half square-mile wall, rebuilding what King Hezekiah had built 250 years before that had been broken down in the exile, having surveyed it by night on the back of an animal, right? Setting out, leaving my home in Persia, traveling a thousand miles and dealing with all this junk, Nehemiah can say, the wall was completed on the 25th of the month Elul, which on the Hebrew calendar would be August, September in 52 days, 52 days. When all of our enemies heard of it, and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence. Why is that? Because they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Distractions can be fatal. Distractions require either the courage to eliminate them, are the wisdom to manage them. And you and I have to figure out which is which. It's distractions that will wreck your marriage. It's distractions that will steal your career. It's distractions that will be the breeding ground for regret that perhaps you'll deal with for years. And it's distractions that can rob you from the effectiveness of living a Christian life that makes a difference if you don't deal with them. And I'd be willing to say that perhaps for some, they got to be dealt with today. So what distraction do you face, Dad? 
mom, student. What distraction do you face, Christian, that if you don't deal with it, is going to have huge repercussions in your life and in the lives of others if you don't deal with them quickly? Would you be willing even this morning as we close out this message to say, oh God, would you search my heart? And in a way that only you can, God, because you made me, would you show me even today those areas of my life where I have become distracted and have traded the main thing for a lesser thing so that I might have the wisdom to either manage it or the courage to eliminate it, that I might not only be the person, but that I might have the impact that you created me to have in my family and beyond for the sake of the message of the gospel. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, would you take a moment to ask God to search your heart that way right now? And would you be willing to follow whatever God leads you to do? You know, for some, there may be distractions in your life. Every eye closed, every head bowed. There may be distractions in your life that God's already been dealing with, but you've been pushing them away. You know, you've been saying, you know what? Things will change at the turn of the year. Things will change in the next year or two. And I'll make the main thing the main thing then. God's been dealing with you, and today you need to make a decision. And for others of you, perhaps the one thing that you need to get right this morning is a choice to give your life to Jesus to begin with. And you've known that Jesus died in your place, that he gave his life for you, and that he rose again because he loves you. And you've known that you've got sin in your life that needs to be erased and wiped away. But there have been so many things that have distracted you. Maybe you've wanted to kind of get a little more you know, life done before you surrender your life to Christ, as though giving your life to Him is a, is a ball and chain. You know, maybe you want to experience a few things, and then I'll settle down and give my life to Jesus, as though you're going to find life somewhere else before you come to Him. Now, maybe for some of you this morning, what God's leading you to do is to get the main thing, the main thing regarding your salvation, and to choose where you sit today, to tell Jesus that now you're finally ready to lay down your sin the best that you can, and to invite Jesus to come in and to forgive you and to take over. God, for every person that, I, that I've seen here through this message, every seat that's filled with a body, Lord, there are perhaps dozens if not hundreds of distractions that are represented in that life. God, we live in a distraction-rich environment. And God, sometimes those distractions cause us to come to a place to where we come to our senses eventually and we wonder, we wonder to ourselves, where did it ever go wrong? How did we ever get so far from you? How did we ever come to a place to where, we're, to where we're not even near where we used to be in relationship to you? Backslidden, broken, wanders. God, I pray today, in these next couple of moments, that you'll bring, that you'll bring those that have wandered back home. And God, the distractions that led us astray, that we'll have the wisdom and the courage to deal with, that we might be the people and the church that you've created us to be. And so, Lord, big decisions these next couple of moments, and I pray that we'll get them right. And so bless them, we ask, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.